My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your appreciation in one of two ways. Number one is you can go and write a brief review on iTunes. Or number two is you can go to interviewthefuture.com and simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Dr. Anne Kabukian. Dr. Kabukian was Ontario's Privacy Commissioner for 17 years or three consecutive terms. And we had a fantastic conversation on that topic about seven years ago. So if you haven't seen our first interview, I recommend that you guys go and check this out because I will try not to repeat any of the questions that we had last time. So without further ado, Dr. Ankovukian, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, Nicholas, my pleasure. Thank you. Fantastic. I know your time is very valuable, so <laughs> let's just sure. jump right in. Um, you're no longer the Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, so what are your main goals and responsibility responsibilities these days? Well, you know, I left there and I joined the university for five years because I really wanted to reach out to students and get the messaging out. But at the end of my five years, so many people were pressing me to do consulting with companies and help organizations. How do you embed privacy by design into your operations? So I thought, okay, I'm gonna bite the bullet. If I don't do it now, I'll never do consulting. So I've been doing that for the past eight, 10 months, and it's been nonstop, Nicola. Between that and a gazillion speaking engagements, I'm delighted that the message of privacy by design has reached so far globally, and we can explain the reasons for that later, but it's everywhere. So the message is getting out. We need to embed privacy proactively into the design of all of our operations, bake it into the code, into your policies and procedures. I agree with you 100%, but let me ask you this though. I can tell, I can see also like you that the message is getting out and more and more people are concerned about privacy today than they ever have been in the past. However, looking back on the last seven years at the global scale since our previous conversation, yes. would you say in your opinion that we have gained or that we have lost ground on privacy overall? Because the message and the the, the, the status quo or the, the affecting situation where we live in today may be different. You know, it's like a chess game, point counterpoint. You make advances and then you have to retreat. And, and that's the nature of this beast. Surveillance has been growing dramatically with all of the machine learning and AI and all of the technology that's out there. The ease with which centralization has grown in terms of massive honeypots of personal information with the Googles and Facebooks that promote surveillance and tracking. So I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. That has grown dramatically. The good news is what has also grown is people's concern for privacy, huge, off the scale. In the last two, three years, concern for privacy is up in 90 percentile consistently. I mean, I've been in this business well over 20 years. I've never seen concern for privacy so high, 90% concerned about their privacy, 92% concerned about loss of control over their personal information. So with that comes this enormous trust deficit associated with these companies. And that's led now to what are we gonna do about it? And that's the good news part of it. People are turning increasingly to privacy by design ever since it was included in the new EU law two years ago, the General Data Protection Regulation. 
includes privacy by design as data protection by design, and privacy as the default setting, which is huge. And so slowly it's turning. And about a year and a half ago, Tim Berners-Lee created the World Wide Web. Yes. He went public and he said, I'm devastated at what I created. It's become this centralized honeypot for data collection, surveillance, and tracking. I'm walking away from centralization. I'm creating a decentralized model, which he's calling solid. But what's happened is that has led to the movement for decentralization now, where the individual is in control of their data. See, mm -hmm. privacy is all about personal control over your own information. You decide how you want your information to be used and to whom you want it disclosed. I always say, look, privacy is not a religion. You want to give away your information? <laughs> be my guest as long as you make the decision to do that. So we are making great inroads into decentralization. That's going to be growing dramatically into a, a secure enclave in the cloud or so many other places. Encryption is growing massively. So I am, I am the eternal optimist because you never give up. You never give up hope for privacy. For See, privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. If you value free and open societies, then you value privacy. And I can tell you a small story. I'm, I'm Armenian. That's my background. Yeah, yeah. My grandparents barely escaped the Armenian Genocide, 1915. My, they were in the prison. They were going to be killed the next day. My, uh, my father was three years old. My grandfather was an artist, an amazing artist painter. And he's thinking, the night before, it's my grandmother telling me the story. What can I do to save my family? What does he know how to do? He knows how to paint and create art. So he had seen the general earlier in the day. And my grandmother told me all night long, she held a candle, and he always carried paper with him, parchment paper, and charcoal because he loved to etch. So from memory, he etched a portrait of the general who he had seen earlier in the day. Wow. And the next morning, as they're leaving, they're about to be killed. He says to the soldier, he rolls up the parchment and says, please give this to General Pasha with my regards. Wow. And the soldier says, stupid man, he's not going to want this. And my grandfather thought that was it, we're going to die. Just as about they're about to be killed, my, the, on horseback at a breakneck speed comes the general. He's waving the parchment paper. Who did this? I want to know who did this. My grandfather said, Effendi, that's Sir in Turkish. I did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And the general says, I like it very much. You and your family, you're free to go. Wow. That's what saved my family. I wouldn't be here today. Ancient. And the reason I like giving that, that story is because I tell people, you never give up. Yeah. What are the odds of art saving your family from dying? Zero. Not quite zero. All you need is a small percentage and you never give up. So that's the message I want to impart. Well, that's, that's a very beautiful and moving message, and I can see how committed and how passionate you are about this, which is why I'm here to begin with. Uh, but let me ask you this. Today, and, and we, we just simply can't avoid the topic, today we are in a global pandemic related to the coronavirus wow. or the COVID-19 virus. Yes. So, the question then is, how would that global pandemic and all the fear and if hysteria, if you will, about toilet paper and whatnot going along with it, would impact on our privacy and all of our other democratic freedoms? Because my concern is that unfortunately we live in a time where it's perhaps the best time to stab democracy in the back while having other excuses, if you will. So what's your take on it? See, there are ways to do it 
and significant ways not to do it. Uh, we're in, in a, a major pandemic, as you said, it's a major crisis. So there are times when the government understandably needs to access data. How fast is this growing? We need to protect certain groups and things like that. But there's proper ways of doing it and not. For example, if the um, government comes to you and they've obtained a warrant, law enforcement has obtained a warrant, they've gone to a judge in a court and they've showed they have probable cause to believe there's gonna be harm in this area. The judge issues a warrant. Then by all means, you, you have to respect the warrant. There's a legitimate need for it, there's huge harm, and the court has granted the warrant. Then you're permitted to do this. For example, Metrolinx, um, a, a few weeks ago, they were approached by law enforcement because they were concerned that certain people who were traveling might have been positive, and, but Metrolinx said, you have to obtain a warrant. They went to the court, they got a warrant, and then Metrolinx, of course, released the information. That is totally acceptable. What is not acceptable is what President Netanyahu is doing now in Israel. He just, or the Iranian government also. Or right. the Iranian government, you're right. I just heard of this story where President Netanyahu went and he somehow has this treasure trove of cellular data associated with all the citizens in Israel. And he's accessing that treasure trove of data, mobile data, which people I'm sure aren't aware of the fact that he has this, and he's using it for purposes of surveillance. He's doing all of this without any judicial authorization, any knowledge or consent or authorization by the people involved. That is not acceptable. You don't just decide on your own. You're gonna go take everybody's data. But what if he says, as I'm sure he has already, we are doing this to save people's lives. We're course. doing it for you. But no, no, there has to be some notion of balance. You can't just take over everybody's personal information say the hell with privacy, we're doing this to save people's lives. People say that all the time. Look at facial recognition. People use that all the time. We're taking images of your face because it's gonna help us catch the bad guys. Excuse me, it does the exact opposite most of the time. In the uh, UK, in Britain, the police use facial recognition all the time in combination with their you know, 4.2 million CCTV cameras. It was found about a month ago that the accuracy rate or lack thereof, 81% of the, of the matches were wrong false, matches. false, false positives, positives yeah. which is the worst kind of wrong match. It means that 81% of the time, an innocent person is matched, identified as the bad guy, the and person of interest. And if you're black Croatian, oh, that's much even worse. 90%. 90%. In fact, there <laughs> was that's another- that's no laughing matter. No, no, there was another figure that came out in the UK, 96%. Yeah. I use 81% because I don't want people to think I'm making this up. They think, how can it be 96%? But definitely. If you're a minority, it's much it higher. Is, it is much higher. So we have to rail against these all these kinds of um, access to our personal information that will cause harm to innocent individuals, deprive them of their privacy, of their freedom, and then try to clear your name. When I was privacy commissioner, a number of victims of identity theft came to me and seeking my assistance to clear their name. They said, look, the credit card companies keep telling us we racked up all these charges. We didn't do that, but they don't believe us. Identity theft is just a nightmare. And imagine 81% of the time false positives. All these people are gonna suffer from that. Totally unacceptable. 
So how do we balance in the context of coronavirus and in the context, you know, Israel is one of the most high-tech countries in the world. Yes. They have already built a very sophisticated surveillance machine with respect to the West Bank for a number of political yes. reasons. Now, how do we balance their legitimate uh, interest yes. in protecting themselves as well as protecting their own population, not only from terrorist attacks, but let's say from uh, the coronavirus, yes. while respecting privacy at the same time. How do we do that? Because people would say it's impossible. You it's have... not impossible. And I always tell people, get rid of the zero-sum mindset that it has to be win-lose. Uh, you know, one could only win, the other has to lose. Privacy by design is all about positive sum, where you can get two positive gains at the same time. That's what our goal has to be. So when there is a legitimate need for surveillance, as there is with the coronavirus, Yes, there are times when you would have to access more information than you normally would, but you have to do that in a judicially authorized manner. You can't just have the government of the day decide we're going to take everybody's information and the hell with the courts, the hell with privacy. No, you rail against that because I assure you, this is going to last a few months, maybe six months at most, hopefully, I hope not. And then we have to have some semblance of law and order. You cannot give up privacy because you're going after whatever it is, surveillance, law enforcement, whatever, there will always be something that the government, the law enforcement community will say, we have to rail against this, like the UK, where they're using facial recognition. Incorrectly, I might add. So Even in the United States, there was recent report from Los Angeles or yes, somewhere in California, yes. where it was 80% unsuccessful, I think. And what they're doing in the United States, San Francisco, San Diego, right, right. Oakland, they're banning facial recognition, yes. an outright ban on facial recognition. Why? Because it's so inaccurate and because it's so harmful to individuals. It can ruin your life. That's not worth it. So we have to have some measure of rationality in this. You don't throw privacy out because there are problems. There will always be problems that will arise. You've, you find ways to do what I call positive sum, multiple positive gains at the same time. That's what privacy by design is all about. We recognize judicial authority. We can do this. Fantastic. So, uh, and, and by the way, one of the problems with acquiring that data, for example, now in Israel or in Iran, which by the way, Iran released this app for uh, monitoring the spread of the coronavirus, at the same time acquiring GPS location data and personal data. And some of the uh, uh, the disclaimers were popping up in English, they said even, like that oh. was so ridiculous. And of Awful. course, people there don't speak English, of most course. of them. So it was just another way of gathering the data. Yes. Um, and we know they're a very suppressive anti-democratic regime. Uh, but, but then once they acquire that data, even Israel, you know, after the, after the crisis is over, that's right. they can still retain that data for as long as they want. Let right? me give you an example of that here in Canada, in Toronto. Wow. Uh, MC catchers are, so how do cell phone works? Um, they, they bounce off of cell phone towers and your mobile device works by bouncing off of cell phone towers, which is legitimate because uh, the telcos, that's how they operate. There's something called an MC catcher, which impersonates a cell phone tower. The police, the RCMP, and it was only, we only found out about it because the CBC outed them. Thank God the CBC found out. They found out that the RCMP, without any judicial authorization, no warrant, they were using MC catchers to catch all the communications of people in a certain area off their mobile devices. When the CBC outed them on this, they said, why did you do that? And they said, well, 
we thought we had a bad guy we were looking for in that particular geolocation area. So that's why we would use the MC catcher. Oh, okay. Uh, did you catch the bad guy? No, he wasn't there. And what about all the thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of intercommunications you did capture from all the law-abiding citizens in the area using the mobile devices? You've deleted that all now, right? Well, no, you know, it might come in handy at some point. They didn't delete it. Yes. Even though it was without judicial authorization, it didn't lead to the capture of the person they were seeking. All these law-abiding citizens, all their information is captured. That is what is appalling. Mark Goodman, who was the FBI futurist, wrote an amazing book called Future Crimes, and he describes a, describes a case in Mexico where the drug cartels installed those devices ah. all over Mexico, and this way they monitor phone calls and, and people who may go snitch to the police about drug operations and stuff like that. Oh. And this is how they, for example, monitor and surveil journalists or, or local politicians who give them hard time and etc. etc. Right? So that's Awful. happening everywhere. Happening. Now, uh, last time your parting message was we have to protect privacy globally or we protect it nowhere. Yes. So let me share with you some of the frustrating messages that I've gotten on YouTube or, or Facebook or elsewhere after I posted our interview and ask you for feedback. So some, someone said, disagree. Privacy protects the politicians and the criminals. Ah! I do not care if Amazon predicts what I'll need to buy next or if oh. Starbucks knows how many cups of coffee I had. We need transparency, not privacy. Oh, such nonsense. Excuse me. I Actually, I agree we need transparency associated with government activities and private sector activities. That I totally agree with. Transparency is essential. But excuse me, if you think the government is not engaged in activities where they impose themselves. I was, as you said, privacy commissioner for three terms. Each term... There was a different political different party. Yeah. It started with um, the NDP, then I think the Liberals and Conservatives, or vice versa. When that political party wasn't the government, they were all for privacy. They want to protect people's individual information. They're all for privacy. When they became the government, all that changed. They want to control the data. They want total control of everything. They want to know who's doing what. It was appalling. And if I didn't report, if I reported to the government as opposed to the legislature through the Speaker of the House, I would have been fired on day two because I outed government problems and all the complaints and investigations I did relating to what they did. So it's nonsense that there's we shouldn't worry about privacy associated with the government. Yes, we should worry about the privacy. We're not protecting the privacy of government. Are they crazy? We need transparency to know what the heck they're doing. We don't protect governments. We protect individuals' citizens' personal information. That's what we protect. And, and generally speaking, I think historically, um, privacy has always served better uh, the sort of the underdogs, the, yes. the least powerful, yes. those against the system. Because transparency, once you have power, then you, you have a lot more leverage to use that power if you have total information awareness, yes. which is another word for transparency, right? Absolutely. But if you don't have power, if you're underpowered, underprivileged, and you're David against Goliath, then privacy serves you because you're weaker, because you have a little bit of secrecy, a little bit of privacy, and maybe ability to actually make a difference. But if 
you're on the same playing field and you have overwhelming power, you have no chance. I totally right? agree. And if I can respond to one thing that the other gentleman sure. said. The reason you have to have privacy globally is information doesn't just reside in your backyard. Yeah. These days, it can reside in a secure enclave in the cloud that's monitored through the EU Across or the US world. or anywhere. Yeah. And that's why the beauty of, of the EU in terms of um, enacting the GDPR, it has required companies all around the world to upgrade their privacy laws to, to be compliant with the GDPR so they can engage in business and trade. Well, let's and, talk about the GDPR then. And, because, and one more thing, just sure, before that, sure. privacy by design has now been translated into 40 languages. Yeah. 40, it's all over the even world. Even in Bulgarian, I saw. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw even in Bulgarian, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. But let's talk about the GDPR because a lot of people say, well, that's all nice and good, but what's the difference? All I see now is a, a cookie that I have to accept before going to a website. I don't see any other difference. That's what people have told me so many times about GDPR. Have you noticed Google is getting rid of cookies? I mean, they feel the pressure. Um, GDPR has imposed huge fines. Think of it, 4% of your total revenue globally. Imagine 4% of Google's global revenue or Facebook or some, it's billions huge, upon billions. billions upon billions. This has had a huge effect. In, as you may know, in um, the United States, the uh, Facebook was fined four, uh, sorry, five billion dollars. Huge. And other jurisdictions all around the world don't think this isn't having an impact. It's not just the money, it's the reputation, which is completely being unwound and people are walking away. Mm -hmm. So never underestimate the effect of the influence of these laws. Yeah, and another thing is I think uh, that we probably should point out is that one of the things about the GDPR is that it gives you the right to withdraw consent yes. retroactively. You can, you can request to see what kind of information they have. You can withdraw your permission at any time and you can ask them to delete it at any time. And if they need, uh, and those are all stemming from privacy by design, the seven principles that yes. we discussed yes. last Thank time, you. Yes. Uh, which uh, among which is basically the fact that if they need to or to use your information for a secondary or a third uh, purpose that was not originally disclosed, they have to come back and ask for positive yes. acceptance from you directly. And Nicola, that's huge. Privacy is the default setting, which is the second of seven foundational principles right. of privacy by design. Means you have you can only use the information for the intended primary purpose of the data collection. If you want to use it for a secondary use down the road. You have to go back to the data subject and obtain their positive consent. Huge, like night and day. Another frustrating comment that I got a, a lot of uh, comes basically to this. Privacy protection is really up to the individuals. People would only know anything about you when you post your own personal information. So people tell me, it's up to us. You can't blame the big companies oh, that they're please. taking their responsibilities only to the shareholders. And it's up to those people who post their information to not post their Now, approach. I agree that you have to be careful and judicious about what information you post on yourself on Facebook, etc. And Facebook, I, it amazes me, um, at the CES conference in Vegas, I think in January, there was a panel and one of the speakers was the chief privacy officer of Facebook. And she said, we have privacy by design at Facebook. Everybody's jaws dropped. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knew about it. That's the thing, they don't tell people. Yeah. But if you dig, and actually go to Facebook and look it up. 
you can get privacy by design, but nobody knows about it. So the thing that I tell consumers and is try to find the strongest privacy on whatever websites you go to, etc. But the reason but it's I, buried so deep in the interface, so deep. absolutely, and it's designed for you not to find it easily and totally spend agree. Two hours, probably, which is why to I dig it out. I agree, and that's why I say don't claim, don't place the responsibility for privacy solely on the individual. Please, you know, life is too short for them to look through all the terms of service and all the legalese and the privacy policy for the opt-out box. And the other thing it's you crazy. say very often is that it has to be opt-in, not yes. opt-out. So, yes. so by by default, it has to be that you're, you have your privacy and only if you explicitly opt-in, then you can share that information. Right now, it's the other way around. Exactly, usually. we're not there by any means, which is why I tell companies that the responsibility also has to be on you. You have to craft your privacy policy in such a way that automatically, by default, protects privacy. Don't place the burden on the individual. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Kavukian, we are uh, we live in the world of technology today with exponential growth and disruptive change, uh, the coronavirus notwithstanding. And of course, we are here in the beautiful city in Toronto, and actually not far away from here, maybe it's even visible just about over there, we have the plans for our so-called smart city. Ah, yes. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that. And sure. first at the theoretical level, yes. what is a smart city? How do we define it? A smart city has massive technology that connects everything. And the technology will offer benefits to citizens uh, as well as intrusions into your personal life, invasion of privacy. And you see, when I was retained initially by Sidewalk Labs, um, to embed privacy by design into the smart city they envisioned for Toronto. I was delighted because I wanted a smart city of privacy, not a smart city of surveillance in the city I live in. See, I'm on the International Council of Smart Cities. All the smart cities coming out in the Far East, Shanghai, Dubai, oh, China, they're all smart cities of surveillance. They're gonna know everything you're doing because you see, the technology is on 24 seven, the sensors, etc. The you Chinese credit system. Oh my God, the social credit system in China makes me gag. It is awful. So here, the last thing I want. So when they retained me, I said, well, then here's what we have to do. Because everything's checks on 24-7. You have to de-identify data at source, meaning the minute the technology, the sensor picks up information about you, you scrub the data. All the personal identifiers get removed immediately. Then you have a wealth of data but it's not linked to a personally identifiable individual. Privacy and data utility. That's what privacy by design is all about. So they agreed to that. And they said, that's why we're hiring. And I remember I said to them, I said, now, I'm delighted to be doing this privacy by design in our smart city, but I'll be a thorn in your side <laughs> if you don't do privacy by design. And they said, that's why we're hiring. I said, great. And it was fine at the beginning, but then things fell apart and privacy by design went out the door. And when that happened... So tell me, what happened to make you resign? What was the, the, the last straw? Uh, it was a board meeting where they were responding to criticism from Jim Balsilli, who was saying to them... The former founder of uh, uh, Green Blackberry. Blackberry. That's right. Yeah. And he said to them, look, okay, so you got privacy covered. Data utility, the data, governance. Who's going to govern the data? It can't just be you, Sidewalk Labs. We need others, governments, etc., to do it. They were very critical of Sidewalk Labs, and Sidewalk Labs are very, very upset about it. So at the, at the board meeting, and this is the only thing they didn't consult me with me on, because they knew what I would say. 
they said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna open up the structure. We're gonna have a data governance model where we're not the only ones deciding how to use the data. It will be a total of the municipal government, Waterfront Toronto, which is the governing body, provincial government, federal, and all the IT com companies delivering the technology. And they said- and You've already seen what happens when people put their hand in the cookie jar from your experience as a privacy commissioner and Absolutely. how they flipped their mind. Absolutely. So you already knew that's And they a said at disaster. the meeting, we'll, you know, we'll encourage the companies to de-identify data at source, but of course we can't make them do that. And as soon as I heard that, I knew I had to resign the following morning. And had they consulted with me, I would have said to them, give me one week, let me go talk to Waterfront Toronto, which is the governing body, and let me get them to say to the companies, you want to play ball with us? You want to work on this? You must de-identify data. Requisite, Absolutely. And they right? would have done it. If you want to be part of this project, this right. is one of the conditions, right? Absolutely. That's what governments do. They Absolutely. have a prerequisite for all their openings for contracts, and you just have to meet the criteria. And you see, Sidewalk Labs didn't want to take that risk, and that was their folly. I resigned the next morning. They couldn't believe it. You know, I remember Dan Doctorov called me from New York City. What are you doing? And, I, and they knew why I was resigning. So I resigned. But here's the beauty of it. An hour later, I got a call from the board of Waterfront Toronto. They said, come work with us. We believe in anonymizing data at source. We want to do that. Come work with us directly. So now I get to work with Waterfront Toronto directly. So maybe something and good would come out of it. Of course. And that is the requirement. You must de-identify data at source. Prerequisite. Prerequisite. They've yeah. insisted upon that. Exactly. So it became a win-win. Brilliant. So, <laughs> but then... What, what would the effect of that be with respect to sidewalk to, uh, side labs? Oh, they must do that. It is a requirement of the agreement, the latest version of the agreement that went back to Waterfront Toronto, uh, went back to sidewalk labs. Their role has been restricted considerably. And if they get the uh, contract, they must de-identify data source. That's an essential condition. Okay, so what's the next biggest issue then with respect to sidewalk labs? Because there's so many levels of criticisms with respect to that project. That's one of the major ones, but it's by far not the only one. Are there any other concerns that you have and what are they? I'll be honest with you, Nikolai. I have focused my energy on the privacy-related components because my time is so stretched that it is a million I can imagine, people. Yeah. So I focused on, I insisted on privacy by design, de-identifying data source, have that in writing and have, you know, privacy impact assessments from end to end, reflecting that. They're doing that, Waterfront Toronto, so I'm delighted with that. That's my area of focus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, because there's a lot of other issues such as the so-called yellow book that got leaked and I think the Globe and Mail published it and then basically the whole vision, uh, the original vision of, of the team behind uh, Sidewalk Labs got published uh, and turned out it was a vision originally envisioned by Larry Page and how they even uh, envision things like basically private services, private currency, uh, private taxation in that period of life, pr private pr police forces, uh, even private yeah. judges, it's not and, gonna happen. and private, like basically a pr privatized community in the shape of a Disney community, yeah. which was a model for them, where basically a corporation is the, the municipal government. Let me make it is. clear. Um, even though I haven't worked on those areas, I know Waterfront Toronto, none of that will happen. I assure you, stay tuned. But shouldn't that disqualify sidewalk labs then? That's with Waterfront Toronto. Mm -hmm. So that decision is still up in the air? 
but there will not be any of what you just said. Yeah, well, I hope it, so. It won't, no. Yeah, I hope so, because that sounds like 1984, or the Chinese uh, oh, social over my system. dead body. Okay, so, uh, and then, could you perhaps give us any information, even though I know that's not your area, but the Canadian Civil Liberties Association is now suing all three levels of government over this partnership between Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalk Labs? I'm sorry, I can't. I'm not yeah. involved in that. Oh, okay, yeah, because that touches on those bigger issues or, or other issues in addition to privacy. Okay, so um, how about the dangers? Last time we discussed it, the danger stems both from governments and from corporations. Yes, for sure. Has the balance of power shifted since our last conversation in the last seven years? If anything, I think governments are stronger now. You really think so? Unfortunately. Um, the, for example, the, the Federal Privacy Commissioner has been pressing Prime Minister Trudeau for the past three, four years, every year, to expand his authority under the federal private sector legislation. He doesn't have order-making power, which I had as a commissioner. In There's, Ontario. In Ontario. Yes. He lacks that. He lacks any ability to impose significant fines, for example and other uh, penalties. Every year he went to Trudeau, every year Trudeau did nothing. This year, because thank God it's a minority government, Commissioner Terrien went to the government again. Even lower chances, probably. No higher, because really? the Conservatives supported the Commissioner's call for strengthening the privacy laws. That's fantastic. It is totally fantastic, thank God. they don't have their hand in the cookie jar, maybe it's not them this time, because Stephen Harper was very different. Harper was, but I think the existing um, leadership of the Conservative government is very different. I have personally spoken to them. They believe in privacy. They see it being eroded, and they are fighting Trudeau on this. So I believe we are now going to finally see an upgrading of the privacy laws, thanks to the Conservatives. Well, that's some welcome good news. I hope it, it, we need it yesterday, but I yes. think let's see how that's going to come out then. Uh, and what about the, the corporation end of things? Because there were so many revelations that we discussed last time that turned out we had incomplete information. So, for example, during our last conversation seven years ago, we were discussing the fact that Google reads your emails and you have uh, Amazon Alexa and yes. all, all those other things, which we didn't have Amazon Alexa, but your answer at the time was that we know that's usually machine learning and AI that reads those, but it's not real humans. Yeah. Well, since then, we've had a ton of it's revelations, true. and we know that every single major company, Facebook, Google, Amazon, had not only people, but even subcontractors quite often, who oh, were often. in the loop, thousands of them, yes. listening over to our conversations yes. in our own house, and even voice recordings oh, and stuff like that. Totally unacceptable. That's why I tell people, don't bring Alexa into your house. Don't bring these smart devices into your house. At this stage, unfortunately, there is no guarantee that people aren't going to listening, be listening to these um, devices. I'll give you an example. I, I do a lot of media interviews, and I got a call, and um, here was a complaint. This individual, it was a couple having a very heart-to-heart -heart conversation about the problems in their marriage. Alexa was on at the time. The next morning, the wife gets a call from her closest friend says, what's, what's wrong? I didn't know you were having problems in your marriage. And she says, my God, we haven't told anybody. How did you learn about that? Well, I got a notice from Alexa. She was on their contact list. I have no idea how this happens. But 
at this point in time, please be careful what you bring into your house. It's the last bastion of privacy. You have to take protective measures. We're working with the private sector companies as well. And they're beginning to get a little more serious after all the facial recognition problems, all the problems with Google and Facebook. Things are slowly turning around. Google is now reducing the number of cookies, etc. But it's a work in progress. But there's so many new documentaries, not only on Google and Facebook. The most recent one was about Amazon. Yes. And how they're becoming a bigger and bigger, more major player. Uh, and, and there's two types of arguments here. One argument is about regulation. I personally lean more towards the Cory Doctorow argument, which is more yes. about enforcement of monopoly or anti-monopoly legislation and breaking them up. Whereabouts are you? Because he says that's, I agree with Corey. that's more of a factor of a size. Yes. rather than anything else. I personally believe that federal legislation in terms of private sector, as is now being contemplated in the United States for the first time ever, this will have a huge effect. As well as, see, when I say, when I talk privacy by design, more and more companies are getting certified for privacy by design because it's not just the stick, which is what regulation is. I always say, look, do privacy because you want to, privacy by design, so you can gain a competitive advantage. Make it work for your business. Tell your customers the lengths you're going to protect their privacy. It will preserve their loyalty, it will attract new opportunity, and it will give you a competitive advantage over the other guys. So I always want to frame privacy as a positive. But at the same time, you have the Net Neutrality Act, uh, which is a huge problem. We also have actually new legislation to be introduced in the American Congress about breaking encryption or oh. installing backdoors oh. into encryption so that uh, as I forget uh, one member of parliament in Canada actually said so that you're not with the child pornographers oh, but they you're, always use that. you're with the police right? It drives me crazy obviously nobody wants child pornography but it is absurd <clears throat> to say that you have to forfeit all your privacy and any possibility of security online for that reason it's not that legislation will not win I'm dating myself, but how many years ago was the clipper chip? 10, 20 years ago? That was the first time that a backdoor was discussed. Worldwide, globally, we discussed it for a whole year. Everyone all around the world at the end of the year said, no, we can't have backdoors. Because you see, what they will do is it will actually weaken security of course. online. Because you create a backdoor. It's not the good, the good guys, the law enforcement is going to use it. It's going to be the bad guys who are going to gain entry. Uh, 2015, there was a group of 15 brilliant cryptographers all around the world. They created a report called Keys Under Doormats. And they gave that title, just as you might put a key under the doormat to allow your child to gain entry into your home if they lost their key, it will also allow the bad guys into your home. <laughs> That's why they named it that. They wanted the public to understand this is a lose-lose. The police are presenting it as a positive. Yeah. It will ultimately lead to utter dese dese uh, desecration of all the security we have online. We cannot do this. That pressure continues by cryptographers, etc. There's no way backdoors can pass. We will fight it tooth and nail to the end. I hope so too, and I will be supporting you. We're unfortunately running in the last three or four minutes of our conversation here, so let me just quickly ask you about 
the connection between AI and privacy by, by design, because you had a, a video that I watched recently of yours online about AI ethics and privacy by design. Can you tell us a little more on that topic? See, we have to explore AI, just like we explore everything else. We have to look under the hood. How does AI work? Yes, it's brilliant, but you see the algorithms are created by the training data sets. The training data sets can be biased. They tend to be biased, especially towards people of color, etc. So And women. And women, of course. So we can't just take as a given, here's an algorithm, the machine made it, deep learning, so it's okay, right? The Wrong. most false positives were on black women, I think. They have the, they're the hardest to identify. Oh, it's, it's terrible. So we can't just accept AI as being positive. We always have to look under the hood, look at algorithmic transparency, look at potential bias that could arise as opposed to the, um, as opposed to the fairness that we're seeking. This will play out and we will get to the bottom of this, but we can't just take it as a given that is perfect and we're not gonna explore this, no. And, and so what would be sort of the guiding principle with respect of privacy by design towards AI then? Always look under the hood and proactively, before the algorithms are put into effect in ways that can implicate people's lives, make sure you've examined the algorithm for potential bias and discrimination and always go back to the training data set, start there. Mm -hmm. And perhaps uh, one question that's very interested, uh, my audience is often very interested in is artificial intelligence in general and the so-called technological singularity in particular. Um, just as kind of like a, a general curiosity, are you concerned about uh, the technological, technological singularity and artificial intelligence in general? See, the reality is that's the, that's the direction we're going in. And, and I would actually challenge that we actually have artificial intelligence now. We don't. We have machine learning. What we're looking towards is artificial general intelligence, yeah. which truly reflects intelligence. We're not there yet. We're very far. Actually. Very far. We need yeah. a long way to go. And that's where I'm hoping we can build in proactive means of ensuring that privacy is embedded into the design of AGI. And I'm optimistic. We'll get there, but we're not close yet. You're surely optimistic, and that even makes me optimistic just talking to you, which is fantastic, because I think we do need some optimism in our world today with so many bad news and so many crises everywhere at every level. Environmental crisis, now a global pandemic, you know, species extinction, soil erosion, you name it. But unfortunately, we're running totally out of time. So, Dr. Kavukin, where can people find more about you and your work if they want to follow you? So they can go to my website. I started um, a new website. It's called Global Privacy and Security by Design Center. And the reason I say privacy and security, I want people to know they have to go hand in hand. Yeah. While the term privacy subsumes a much broader set of protections than security alone, in this day and age of daily cybersecurity attacks, if you don't have a strong foundation of security from end to end with full life cycle protection, you're not going to have any privacy. So tell them to go there, Global Privacy and Security by Design Center.com. Fantastic, and I'll put a link too. But we've been talking for about maybe 40 or 45 minutes today. What do you want to be your final message? Your parting, most important thing that you want to tell us? Today? Never give up. Never, ever give up, because you're going to hear all the people. I tweet every day, and if you feel like following me on Twitter, it's just at Anne Kavukian. 
And I already I, follow you on Twitter. Uh, and I have quite a large Twitter following. But invariably, someone will come back to me each day and say, lady, give it up. Privacy's dead. That ship has sailed. And I say, are you kidding me? Then get another goddamn ship. You don't give up on <laughs> privacy. You don't give up on freedom. You never give up. That's my message. There's always ways, no matter how large surveillance may be and growing, there's every day there's a new positive message in terms of privacy, encryption, all kinds of things that are developing. You never give up. Dr. Ankevukian, thank you very much for being with us today. And I sure can tell that you're not about to give up anytime soon, probably never, as you just said, if what you do. And we're very grateful that you do the, the work that you thank do. You thank so you so much. My pleasure, Nicola. Anytime. My pleasure. Thank you. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.